Hey everyone, and happy holidays! It's been a big year at Opinion Science Headquarters, uh, otherwise known as my house. <laughs> 2021 was the first full calendar year of Opinion Science, and I think it was a great one. Truly amazing guests from a variety of backgrounds doing a bunch of very cool work in the area of public opinion and persuasion and communication. Throw in a handful of very ambitious projects like the Contact Hypothesis episode from August and uh, last month's look at IBM's Project Debater AI system. Plus a, a lot of stuff going on in my life off mic and uh, I I'm, I'm pooped, <laughs> you guys. So I'm taking a quick break this week to focus on getting some quality time in with my family. And rather than release a new episode this week, I want to replay one of my favorites, which also happens to be super timely. This time last year, I released a fun episode on the psychology of gift giving, which obviously ties in with the holiday season that we're in. So if you missed it then, please enjoy. And, and if you heard it last year, I, I think it's worth revisiting. I'll be back in January with some new stuff, so enjoy the holidays, everybody. I, I feel like it's the main detail that I can remember, like the emotional memory I have is just the sheer cockiness I had. Like, I really... I don't like love to give like holiday based gifts, but when I find a good gift, like I like love that feeling of being like, oh, this is thoughtful. You're going to love this, like take this kind of feeling. And I think as a kid, that was like my first experience with that, where I was like, oh man, there they are. Like beeline for the marbles, get that done ahead of time, get them that goes out of the way and then shop around. That's my friend, Laura Sanders, talking about a gift she got for her big sister when they were kids. Kids love gifts. Yes, they like to get presents, but they like to give them, too. But when it was time to get Christmas presents for her family, Laura's options were limited. I don't know if your school had these. My elementary school, White House Elementary in White House, Ohio, it was Shopping Santa, where it was, like, very cool with being a public school that openly celebrated Christmas. <laughs> and you would, like, get these paper bags, like grocery bags, and they'd be decorated, and the gym would just look like a whole like low rent Etsy store where they'd be like, it was basically like, hey, you don't actually want to take your kid to a mall because that's a nightmare, but you want to like teach them that Christmas is about gifts. So come and like give, you pin like a little envelope of money to this bag. And then they wander these like little games and like little cheap things and they buy things for their family here. And there she saw the perfect gift for her big sister, Bethany. A small, plastic mesh bag filled with clear glass marbles. The working theory is that Bethany had gotten this sack of marbles for herself a year earlier, so when Laura happened upon the item at the school's gift fair... I was like, she's gonna love these, 100%. I'm gonna get them for for sure. But these may not be the marbles you're imagining. You know, delicate orbs with hypnotic colors swirling throughout. I also talked to Bethany about this story and asked her to describe these marbles that she got. They were not like the, the totally smooth and, and they did not, they were not like the, the kind of pretty marbles that you often see that have some kind of design or color pattern or like, or like thing in the middle. They really were clear glass spheres. <laughs> Nevertheless, they seemed like a slam dunk. Laura gave the clear glass spheres to her sister and everybody had a Merry Christmas. At the time I was five and she was nine. 
And so she was just like so nice. And she's like, I love these. This was so thoughtful. This is great. So I think I like nailed my first Christmas buying gifts just like right out the gate. So fast forward a year and it's time to buy gifts again. And so how do you top the bag of marbles that your sister loved last year? Turns out you don't. (laughs) You buy the exact same marbles again. And the next year, just get the same bag of marbles. Next year, marbles. Five years in a row, I'm pretty sure. Every year for Christmas, she would just open up the present for me and it's like, here's another sack of marbles. Just here it is again. Again, I don't specifically remember opening like the second year bag of marbles as distinguished from the third year bag of marbles or the fourth year bag of marbles. But it just, I I just quickly, I, I very quickly just came to expect this from Laura. <laughs> and I was just like, it's odd that you think this is a thing. But okay, <laughs> that's fine. I'll, you know, say thank you for the marbles and then move move on pretty pretty quickly. I, I remember being like stressed out about other people's gifts and being like, oh, thank goodness Bethany loves these marbles so much. <laughs> so what is it? Is it the case that the whole time you genuinely thought these were good gifts for her? Yes, yes. <laughs> 100% thought she loved them. Like when I was like 10, which would have been about how old I was, like the first year of the marbles, like solid. But then it stretched to when I was like 14. <laughs> so a little, maybe less, less, less apt. But when Laura finished elementary school, the reign of the marbles had to end. The gift fair, which Bethany described as... Pretty rough. <laughs> well, it wasn't available anymore. So Laura had to consider other options. They grew up, and like so many of us, they're still stuck with questions about what to get their family for Christmas. Although now I have a niece who's five, mm. and I should probably send her something. And that I have an idea. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Opinion Science, the show about the science of our opinions, where they come from, and how they change. I'm Andy Luttrell, and on this special holiday episode, we're talking gift-giving. Oftentimes on this show, I'll spend the whole time talking to someone about their work, but today, we'll shake things up by getting insights from several experts on the psychology of giving. It's that time of year when we're bombarded with ads and catalogs and sales, all because it's a season of giving gifts. But it's not just the winter holidays, birthdays, housewarming parties, baby showers, graduations. We give and receive gifts constantly. I think the number is something like we spend 30 gazillion dollars a year on gifts, uh, something like that. And think back to a gift you've received that you really loved. And think back to a gift that was just truly awful. (laughs) What was the difference? Since this show is all about where our likes and dislikes come from, it sounds like a job for opinion science. We'll start by asking whether it's worth giving to people in the first place. Like, sure, it's nice for them, but like, come on, what's in it for us? Then we'll jump into an emerging area of research in marketing and psychology that looks at the gifts people like to give, the gifts people like to get, and why those aren't always the same thing. So to start, 
Why give in the first place? I mean, it's pretty obvious that it's nice to get fun things. So as the recipient of a gift, this makes sense. It's like when kids really learn that their birthday is when they get presents and they're like, so why don't we do this every day? But what's in it for the giver? I, I don't think it's too controversial to say that people can be pretty selfish. So if I have $20, why would I spend it on you when I could spend it on me? Like, I, I guess it's bad for my reputation if I'm the one guy who doesn't bring a gift to the baby shower. But beyond that, uh, what are we doing here? Well, it turns out that even though we might expect that $20 to make us happier if we use it for ourselves, we actually get a bigger happiness jolt from spending it on others. Laura Acknon is an associate professor of psychology at Simon Fraser University, and she studies pro-social spending, which is just when people spend money on others. And she specifically looks at whether pro-social spending can make us happier. When we show people dollar signs and when we give them the choice in the here and now, they, they quickly default to these selfish preferences whereby they think they will be happier or they choose to um, invest in themselves. And what I think our research has shown time and time again over the past decade or so is that, you know, looking in rich and poor countries across the age spectrum and various personal histories, um, most people are, in fact, quite, quite a bit happier when they spend on others than on themselves. But it's one thing to claim that spending money on other people makes us happier. It's another thing to prove it. So back when she was a graduate student at the University of British Columbia, Laura worked with Elizabeth Dunn and Michael Norton on some telling experiments. For example, they went up to students on UBC's campus, students who were just, you know, walking around, <laughs> minding their own business, and they asked if they would do a quick survey. The survey was really just a way for them to ask a simple question about how happy the student was at that moment. Then they gave them some money, either $5 or $20, but terms and conditions applied. They told the students that they had to spend the money by 5 o'clock p.m. that day. But they told half of the students that they had to spend the money on themselves, and half that they had to spend the money on someone else. And it was totally random which set of instructions people got. I asked Laura if she remembers what kinds of things people spent that money on. I do. Uh, so a lot of it was food, okay. <laughs> uh, which had to do, I think, with the time, you know, we recruited people in the morning and lunch passed in between. Um, but people were doing it in, in um, although like at a higher level, a lot of it was food and consumption. Uh, a lot of it had to do with like there, there was some magic in the details, if you will. Um, people who were in the personal spending condition were buying themselves a latte and heading to class. And people who were in the pro-social spending condition were uh, treating friends for lunch, taking friends to coffee. Some people went out their way and took special bus routes home to bring home like special food for their family because they wanted to, you know, give, give a parent a night off. In the evening, after all the money was spent, researchers called the students to follow up. And they just asked again, how happy are you? Um, when we analyzed the data later, what we found was those people who were randomly assigned to spend on others were significantly happier, uh, regardless of whether it was 5 or $20. And you might think, sure. This makes sense for well-to-do college students, but other people won't get the same boost from spending on others, or they have real need for the money, and so they will be happier if they spend it on themselves. But Laura and her team are on top of that. They've tested this all over the place. 
used it in South Africa and in several other places. And so rich in four countries around the world. In this like remote village in Vanuatu, kids who were 22 months came into the lab with their parents, people living in these remote villages with very little access to healthcare, no running water, no electricity, and also uh, recently looking at ex-offenders. And in all of these different studies, when people got some money and they spent it on someone else, they were happier than if they spent it on themselves. So even though you might think that you'll enjoy getting a gift yourself, that silly old adage holds true. Oh yes, it's better when you give than when you okay, so when we give gifts, we feel nice and warm inside. We feel happier. But we're still left with the dilemma of what to get. And to answer that question, we can start with a more basic one. Do we even know what we're doing in the first place? A lot of research in psychology and marketing has shown that gift givers have some clear biases that make it hard for them to choose gifts that receivers would actually like the most. To learn more, I talked to Jeff Gallick. He's an associate professor of marketing at Carnegie Mellon's Tepper School of Business. The biggest difference between a giver and a receiver is what they're imagining in the case of a, of a gift exchange. So a giver, by and large, that's at least the evidence seems to suggest, is imagining that moment of exchange when they're saying, hey, Andy, here's this present for your birthday or whatever, whatever it might be. And as a giver, I want to see that smile on your face. I want to see you reacting positively to this gift that I gave, both for selfish reasons, because I want to feel like I'm a good gift giver and I've done my my duties, but also for interpersonal reasons, right? We want I want to make sure our relationship is solid. I want to make sure that the gift has met its purpose. Um, but then when you flip it over to the receiver side, that's only a small fraction of their experience with a gift. Yes, that you know interaction where they hand over the gift exists, but in their time course of owning this gift, that is a tiny sliver of all of that. So these two different goals, givers wanting to maximize the whiz-bang wow moment of giving the gift, and receivers wanting something they'll still like after the moment of getting it, well, that difference can cause some friction. Julian Givey had a good example of this. Julian is an assistant professor of marketing at West Virginia University's John Chambers College of Business. As a graduate student, he worked with Jeff Gallick to understand gift-giving, and it almost seems predestined. <laughs> I mean, his last name is Givy, and he studies gift giving. It's perfect. I actually asked him if anyone's ever called him out on that. You are the first person to tell me that. However, I have noticed that because uh, there have been times where I've, you know, either controlled F looking for either my last name or for giving, and I, I come across the other one. So his PhD advisor, though, re remembers it differently. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I've said that before. So, yeah. Anyhow, Julian summed up the differences between givers and receivers by pointing to the all-American fondue pot. Givers like to give really fun things, right? Like things that like, uh, let's say like, like a chocolate fondue fountain, right? So whenever you open, you know, the person opens it, it's like, oh, it's exciting. But at the same time, that's not all that useful, right? Like, as, so as a, as a giver, I might like giving it because I really want to make you happy, you know, see your face uh, you know, see the smile on your face, right? Whenever, right? Whenever you open the gift, but as a recipient, I'm thinking like, okay, but like in two weeks, you know what I mean? I'm going to be needing like a toaster oven or something that's actually useful. Like I could only use this, this fondue fountain like once in a blue moon, but these other, 
you know, sort of less fun things that might not make me so excited right when I open the gift, they're going to provide me with a lot of value and usefulness whenever I actually go about, you know, in my everyday life. If you so it, it makes sense that givers and receivers come at these situations from different perspectives. But how do we actually test this scientifically? Well, there are plenty of strategies, but a common one is pretty simple. In an experiment, you can show people information about a potential gift or a, a collection of potential gifts, flip a coin, and if it comes up heads, you ask people to approach the option as a gift giver. Like, you're looking for a gift for a friend. Do you think you'd give them this gift? Or which of these options would you choose to give to this person? But if the coin comes up tails, you ask the person to approach the option as a recipient. What if someone gave you this gift for Christmas? Or which of these gifts would you prefer to get for your birthday? A lot of what I think is most interesting about those hypothetical scenarios is people are givers and recipients in the real world. And yet, when you just merely ask them to put their hat on as a giver versus their hat on as a recipient, they almost forget that that other half exists and operate as if that were not the case. So they're pretty good at doing this, right? Like they're able to take on that persona. Um, and I think we're able to learn quite a bit. Let's start with a simple example of how givers and receivers approach things differently. How important is the cost of the gift you're giving? Let's mentally travel back to the days of 2009 when iPods were a thing people wanted and AOL Instant Messenger ruled the social media world. Researchers at Stanford gave a bunch of people a simple scenario. Pick someone from your buddy list on AOL Instant Messenger. For younger listeners, think Facebook friend or mm, TikTok companion, I, I, someone you know reasonably well. A random half of the people were then asked to imagine that this person had just graduated from high school and they were nice enough to get that person a gift. Sometimes the researchers said that the gift was an inexpensive CD, and sometimes they said it was a pricey iPod. And they just had to imagine, how much would your friend appreciate this gift you gave them? Sure enough, when they were wearing the hat of a gift giver, they assumed the person would like the iPod more than the CD. They thought the iPod would seem like a more thoughtful gesture, and so their friend would appreciate it more. But the other random half of participants were asked to imagine that they were the person who had graduated, and this person got them a gift. This time, with the recipient hat on, people didn't distinguish between the CD and the iPod. Both seemed pretty great. So here we see that when we approach gifts from the giver's perspective, we put a lot of weight on the wow factor. But as gift recipients, we realize that it's not all that important. Okay, so as gift givers, we think price matters more than it actually does. But what else do we get wrong? One way to think about this is to ask, what would a recipient actually like? And why might a gift giver deliberately avoid giving it? Five years in a row, I'm pretty sure, I got Bethany a clear sack of marbles. In my friend Laura's case, she doubled down on a gift for her sister and gave it every year she possibly could. In retrospect, it seems like a silly thing to do. Give the same gift every year? But maybe we're wrong. M maybe that's a great strategy. 
Growing up, my parents would get me a box of those Ferrero Rocher chocolates every year for Christmas, and I loved them. I looked forward to them. Every Christmas, was it was great. <laughs> the year there wasn't Ferrero Rocher in my stocking, yeah, I'll admit it, I, w- I was disappointed. I always think of that scene in A Christmas Story. It's Christmas morning, everybody's tearing open their presents, excited about what they got, and the dad just looks around and says, Did I not get a tie this year? Just because we got a gift before doesn't mean we wouldn't like it again. But we don't always appreciate that when we have our gift-giving hat on. Uh, Givers don't like to give things that they've given to recipients in the past. So, uh, for example, let's say I give my friend a Starbucks gift card for their birthday at the beginning of this year. When it comes to their Christmas gift, even if I know they're really going to want a Starbucks gift card, I'm going to say, no, you know, I want to, I want to kind of give something thoughtful and not, not so, not so boring. Right. So even if I don't think they will like say a subway gift card as much as the Starbucks one, I'll go ahead and give them a subway gift card just to kind of like make me feel good about myself. And he's actually studied that gift card example. He asked people to imagine that they had to give their friend a gift for Christmas, and they chose between a $25 gift card for Starbucks, Subway, AMC, or Best Buy. Later, when he asked them to imagine that they also needed to buy a birthday gift for this person a few weeks later, only 30% of people chose the same gift card they had chosen for that person's Christmas present. But when he asked people to imagine that they were the friend receiving a Christmas present and a birthday present, 62% of them chose the same gift card twice. Now, some of this may just be that we know our own preferences, so we know which gift we would want the most, and givers are just shooting in the dark. But in another study, Julian made this all very clear. He said, Imagine after you give the Christmas present, your friend says to you that they really like that company and they are excited to use the gift card. Here, when it comes to making a choice for that person's birthday, it seems that gift givers got the hint, at least some of them. 62% chose the same gift card that worked out before. But that's still a lot of givers who cannot help but still pick a different gift card for the second gift. Show the same scenario to receivers, though, and 76% of them say, well, if I loved the first one, I would like it again. And like Julian mentioned, this seems to have a lot to do with the pressure givers feel about giving special gifts. When he asks people to imagine giving or receiving the same gift twice, givers lamented that it, it wouldn't seem thoughtful. It would seem boring. Receivers didn't share their concerns. And she says even now, this is how she says that she did kind of like them. Hey, everybody. It's just me again. Sorry to interrupt, but I want to take a quick second to tell you about an exciting new project of mine. And it has to do with a cool new platform called Knowable. Like you're able to know something. Knowable. Knowable features digestible audio courses on all sorts of topics. You can learn about healthy cooking from New York Times food writer Mark Bittman. You can learn about space from Scott Kelly, a NASA astronaut. You can learn about improv comedy from the folks at Upright Citizens Brigade. And you can learn about persuasion from me. (laughs) My course, The Science of Persuasion, is on there now. In it, I introduce a bunch of fundamental insights from the long history of research on what changes people's minds from working around people's resistance to the qualities of persuasive people 
to the ways in which messages connect with unique audiences. I weave together all sorts of research in psychology, communications, and political science, and present it in a way that, uh, you know, I hope is entertaining. <laughs> to check out my course and all the other cool stuff on Knowable, go to knowable.fyi, or look at the show notes for a link. It's just $4 a month for the entire catalog, and you'll help keep the lights on here at Opinion Science. Okay, that's all I wanted to say. Back to the show. All right, here's the part of the show where I pause to rail against the capitalist machine and lose my mind at how we've lost sight of the true meaning of Christmas. It's easy to roll your eyes at that kind of commentary, but honestly, it does get sort of irritating to keep buying junk and spending money just because we have this culture of doing so. But as we saw before, giving to others can bring happiness, and the amount we spend doesn't seem to matter as much as we think. So what about sentimental gifts? The kinds of gifts that carry meaning that goes deeper than the object itself. Do people actually like getting these gifts? I mean, sure, my dad said he liked the thoughtful artistry of an eight-year-old's watercolors, but was my rough painting of a family portrait actually a good gift? As a starting point, let's consider a study that Jeff Gallick did with his former student Yang Yang. They asked romantic couples to participate in a personality survey. They, they came to the psychology lab together, but they were escorted to opposite sides of the room, where they filled out a long personality test. But this wasn't a study about personality. That, that, that part was a sham. It was just an excuse for the real study. Because when they finished the survey, they were told that they would receive a gift. Sometimes the experimenter would just give them each a gift as a thank you for doing the study. But sometimes... The participants got a choice. And the choice is going to be between one of two opaque boxes. And one box is labeled for you, and the other box is labeled for your partner. And choose whatever you want. It's up to you. So they could decide whether to pick a box and take that gift for themselves, or they could decide to pick the other box and give it to their partner. And I think if I recall, all but one or two couples in every case chose for the other, which is telling you something about the couples that didn't choose the other. Um, and in these cases, partners would meet back up and exchange the boxes that they picked for each other. And it's not like these were amazing gifts or anything, but it was the same gift, regardless of whether it came from the experimenter or whether it had been chosen by their partner. One gift was a little calendar toy, and in the research paper they described the other gift as, quote, a man-made grass toy, or as Jeff describes it, um, a fake chia pet head, if I remember. <laughs> so it didn't actually grow when you poured water on it, but it kind of looked like it. it was cute. We pre-tested all these things to make sure they were well-liked. So anyhow, what they found was that even though everybody generally liked the gift they got, when people received that gift from their partner, they attached sentimental value to it compared to people who got the same exact item from an experimenter. And when they surveyed everybody again three months later, the people who got the gift from the experimenter had become less excited about it. But when the same gift came from a romantic partner, it held its value. And when they followed up another six months later, that continued to be the case. So if a chia pet, I, I mean a fake chia pet head, if that can be imbued with sentimental value that brings people happiness for months, 
What about a gift that's deliberately intended to be sentimental? Like a photo album, or a family heirloom, or a keepsake from an experience we had together. Based on the study with the couples, it seems clear that people enjoy sentimental things. And when it comes to gifts... Recipients just overwhelmingly love sentimentally valuable objects. Um, and again, it's not surprising if we come back to this thoughtfulness discussion. That's, that's meaningful, right? It's, it's something that shows that you took the time not just to buy a random item off the street, which anyone could have purchased, but actually took the time to do something that is somehow special for that individual and perhaps solely for that individual. But does this mean we give sentimental gifts as often as we should? Jeff and his student at the time, Julian Givey, wanted to test it. And before doing the studies, they were assuming that Whenever people give gifts, they would give sentimental gifts too often because they sort of have like, oh, I want you to think about me. You know what I mean? Whenever you're using this gift, so I'm going to give you the sentimental ones way more than the recipients want. And we found the exact opposite and it kept happening and happening. So we're like, well, I guess that, that is in, in fact what, um, what the givers and the recipients' preferences were in that context. For example, they ran a study where they asked people to imagine that they were going to their friend's going away party. And they had two options for a gift. A, buying a big, framed, high-quality photo of their friend's favorite musician. Or B, printing and framing an 8x10 photo from their phone of the two of them having fun together. They found that only 76% of people chose the sentimental photo option. Now, that's still most people opting for the sentimental gift, but it also means that about a quarter of the participants thought that the musician photo was the way to go. And this all gets more striking when we look at what people say if it's their going away party. In this case, when they're receiving the gift, 96% of the people chose the sentimental gift. Granted, the going away party was a hypothetical scenario, so Jeff and Julian also wanted to see what happens when a real gift is on the line. And when are gifts more of a minefield than once again in romantic relationships? They had couples complete a survey in pairs. They randomly picked one person to be the gift giver, and that person took the first part of the survey alone. He or she identified their partner's favorite store and picked a sentimental gift that they thought their partner would like. The options for the sentimental gift were things like monogrammed drink coasters or personalized coffee mugs. So let's say you're the gift giver in this study. You say your partner loves Macy's and that they would like a personalized coffee mug. In that case, you're given a simple choice. Give your partner a $25 Macy's gift card or give the sentimental coffee mug. Whatever you choose, Jeff and Julian are going to see to it that your partner actually gets this gift. So this is a real decision. You make your call. Then it's time for a switcheroo. You leave the room and your partner comes in to complete the survey. And the survey simply presents them with the same choice. Would they prefer to receive a $25 Macy's gift card or would they prefer the sentimental coffee mug that you picked? Now, in general for this study, the recipients were overall less excited about the sentimental gifts. I don't know, maybe people have enough coffee mugs or, or they just love gift cards, but 34% of the gift recipients chose the sentimental gift. But even still, givers missed the mark. Less than 24% of them chose the sentimental gift. So even when it's real gifts and real couples, givers hesitate to give sentimental gifts 
as often as receivers would enjoy them. In fact, when I asked Julian how his own gift-giving has changed since he started researching this topic, he had this to say. There's a few different things that I, I keep in mind. Probably the big one that I've been doing lately, or actually, in fact, since I started, was just going with more sentimental gifts. Because, like like I said, um, our studies show that people don't give them uh, nearly as often as recipients prefer. And in fact, like I was like when I was starting with that project, I was thinking to myself, like, when was the last time I ever gave one? And really, like since then, I've been giving them much more often. And it's like every time you give one, they're a hit. You know what I mean? They really are. Um, so that's another thing I, I, I do myself. I try to encourage people. I say, you know, if you, if you have the opportunity to go for one, because they're, they're almost always, always a good hit. You know, I, I get the idea that this research is revealing repeated gifts or inexpensive gifts. These are things that receivers don't mind or even like. But when we're the giver, they seem underwhelming. So sure, I can feel comfortable giving repeated gifts or inexpensive gifts. But it still doesn't necessarily answer the question, what should I get this person in the first place? And the thing is, we already know the answer. There's a very simple way to knock this one out of the park, but y you might not like it. Just ask people what they want. Jeff Gallick again. It really is this weird social norm that we have in our culture. And I don't know that this is true in other cultures. I'm, I'm not a cross-cultural researcher. Um, but in our culture, it is taboo to ask somebody what they want for their birthday or for Christmas or whatever it is. Um, and I think that's insane. I think that is a disservice to all of society. And I am not mincing my words here. Um, if we would take the moment to ask somebody else what they want and deliver on that thing, assuming it's financially and practically feasible, everyone would be better off. The giver would spend less time, you know, worrying about what gift to give, would spend less time having to, you know, search for that particular gift. Um, and the recipient would get what they want. I mean, it's, it is a win on every dimension. And we as a culture have decided that it's inappropriate. I think that's dumb. He's referring to a set of studies by Francesca Gino and Francis Flynn. In one of their studies, for example, they asked people to imagine that it was their birthday or their significant other's birthday. If it was their birthday, they were asked to consider that they had given their significant other some suggestions for what they wanted, and then imagined either that they actually received something on their wish list, or that their partner had come up with something on their own. If they were imagining their partner's birthday, they were asked to consider that their partner provided a wish list, and then imagine either that they chose something from the list or came up with a gift on their own. When people put on their gift-giving hat, they didn't distinguish between the scenarios. They thought the gift would be thoughtful and appreciated, regardless of whether it was on the wish list or not. But when people put on their gift-receiving hat, it was clear that they would appreciate the gift more if it was something that they had actually asked for. In another study, they interviewed people who had been to weddings or who had had weddings of their own. And just like the hypothetical birthday scenario, wedding guests who gave a gift on the official registry and wedding guests who came up with their own gift were not any different in how much they thought the couple would appreciate the present. But when you talk to couples who received wedding gifts, as they thought back on their gifts, they appreciated the ones plucked from their registries a lot more than the ones they never asked for. So it's pretty simple. Just ask what they want. 
Because getting people what they want doesn't have to be a sign of thoughtlessness or that you don't care. It's often just the opposite. Benefits for communication, relationships, happiness. And it's not hard. Uh, my wife and I have, have been doing for years now um, is we have a Google Doc that we share, and it's our gift doc. And whenever we think that there's this item that we might want for ourselves, but maybe it's too expensive or just too silly to purchase, we throw it on that uh, on that list, and the other person has access to it. And whenever it's time to give a gift for whatever occasion, there's no guesswork. Um, and you'd think it takes like the romance out of gift giving or something like that, but no. When I get the gift that I requested, I'm really freaking happy, <laughs> and that gift will always remind me of the person who gave it to me, my wife. So like one of the best gifts she ever gave me was this kind of somewhat fancy espresso machine for for our house. And I love it. I mean, I use that thing three times a day. And every single time it is a gift that I think, wow, how awesome is it that I have a wife that would get me something so great and something that I would want. There was no surprise. I knew I was going to get it. I asked for that specific model. I researched the hell out of it to know which one I would get. And it is still one of the best gifts I've ever gotten. The last stop on our journey through the minds of givers and receivers has to do less with knowing what gifts will be appreciated, and more to do with what strengthens our connections with others. Some of the research on this question has looked at a simple distinction between the types of gifts we can give. On the one hand, there are giver-centric gifts. These are things that reflect the giver's interests and passions. So like, if you read a book you loved and got a copy of it for your friend, that is giver-centric. You're sharing something of yourself. On the other hand, there are recipient-centric gifts. These are the things that reflect the recipient's interests and passions. So maybe I don't love hockey, but if I get you a book about your favorite hockey team, that's recipient-centric. And which of these types of gifts is better? Lara Acknon, who we heard from earlier, wanted to find out so she started by just asking people what they thought was better. There just seemed to be an overwhelming preference. Like, oh, overwhelming, I don't even think captures it. It was just a whopping um, lean towards the majority of the sample thinking that, of course, when you give gifts, you give gifts that reflect the recipient. This is what you do. Like in every way we could ask the question, people hands down said, no, gifts should be given that reflect the recipient. I mean, it, it makes sense. Isn't it a little narcissistic to ignore the other person and just give away things that show off how cool I am? How bold of me to assume that you'll like exactly the same things I like. But maybe we need to shift our priorities. This whole episode has been about givers agonizing over what recipients will be impressed by and trying to recalibrate ourselves to recipients' true preferences. But exchanging gifts isn't just about getting stuff we like. It's about the exchange, the people in our lives that we feel close to. When a kid gets his mom a trashy beaded necklace, or gets her sister a bag of marbles, those gifts might not be great on the surface, but they reflect important relationships. So we have a new question. When it comes to building relationships, do giver-centric, or recipient-centric gifts do that job better. 
So for instance, I remember this study quite clearly. We recruited people at the mall around Mother's Day <laughs> and we told them that we were going to buy their card in the local Hallmark or card shop or whatever it was. And um, we said, you go in, you could go in and pick whichever one it is, but we randomly assigned them to either buy a card that reflected them as the giver or the recipient, their, their mother or mother figure. So these unsuspecting shoppers head off into the store and either choose a Mother's Day card that reveals their true preferences, interests, or passions, or they pick a card that reveals their knowledge of their mom's preferences, interests, and passions. And even though people generally think that recipient-centric gifts are the way to go, people who were randomly assigned to give a gift or a card that reflected who they were made them feel closer. In other words, when they interviewed people after they chose a card and asked how close they felt to the person who would receive the card, the people who had picked out a card that reflected themselves actually felt closer to their moms than the people who picked out a card that reflected the recipient. And they've done other studies showing that when people get giver-centric gifts, they also feel closer to the giver. We recruited pairs of individuals to come into the lab. They were randomly assigned to either the giver or recipient role, and the giver was randomly assigned to either give a, a giver-centric gift or a recipient-centric gift. And so they went on iTunes and bought a song that either reflected who they were or who the recipient was primarily. Um, and then they sent it via email to the other participant in the other room. And the recipients this time reported that they felt closer when they were given a giver-focused gift than a recipient-focused gift. So in the end, even though we think we're supposed to focus on the recipient's likes and preferences when we're choosing a gift for them, there are advantages to giving something about you in the gifts you give to people who are close to you. Okay, it's been a complicated journey, but to sum up, givers often go wrong because they approach gift giving with biases that are just misguided. They think price matters, but recipients disagree. They're wary of repeating themselves, but recipients don't care. They avoid being sentimental when that's what recipients prefer. They try so hard to be unique when recipients just want what they asked for. And in the grand scheme of things, givers can get so caught up in picking the right gift for the recipient that they lose out on opportunities to make the relationship stronger. So how do we overcome these biases? Well, knowledge is one thing, helps to know that there are the biases there to begin with. But Julian Givey had another strategy that may help reframe the decision. But I think as far as encouraging people to be better gift givers is to, to sort of treat the decision as if it's not taking place in the gift giving context. So by that, I sort of mean that rather than thinking about it as if you're you know, going to be giving this person a gift on Christmas morning like under the tree. Imagine that you're just choosing for this person in something like it's their own money or it's, you know, th th you have nothing to do with this. You're just picking the thing that you think that they're going to like more. Like, which one would you pick? Like any social behavior, gift giving is complicated. And just when I think we should shut it all down and stop the madness, I remember the times when I got to give someone a really great gift, or I got a surprise gift from a loved one that I still hang on to. So it's not all bad. And the research in psychology makes the lesson pretty clear. Let's take the pressure off of getting the most perfect, most amazing, most impressive gifts, and let's maybe consider that at the end of the day, 
Gifts are really a symbol that you care about someone. A sign that you're willing to pitch in and help them get something that they need. And if all else fails, maybe we can quietly retire old traditions. And now our preferred thing, my family doesn't even do gifts for Christmas anymore. And it's incredible. It feels great. So, I think like, there I might be like... a reason that your family canceled gift giving. <laughs> <laughs> they thought, well, the grand experiment has failed. <laughs> I would love it if they canceled it after the fifth bag of marbles happened. <laughs> They're like, we don't, we don't even care. Okay, doke, that'll do it for another episode of Opinion Science. And with this special episode, we close out the year. Adios to 2020, which, for all of its misery, was the year this podcast started. So there's that. 27 episodes. And a few bonus episodes along the way. I honestly can hardly believe that that's true. Many thanks to my friends Laura and Bethany Sanders for sharing their story of Christmas marbles. I'll go ahead and mention that Laura is a stand-up comedian, which is an excuse to plug her comedy albums. You can check out the show notes for information on those. And thanks to my social science experts, including Laura Acknon, Jeff Gallick, and Julian Givy. By the way, when he's not studying gifts, Jeff Gallick runs the YouTube channel Data Demystified, where he does a nice job introducing the world to the ins and outs of what we can learn through data. You can find information about that YouTube channel and information about all of our experts in the show notes, including links to all of the research that we talked about. If you enjoy the show, be sure to subscribe to Opinion Science on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, wh wherever you get this stuff. And if you want to do me a favor, you can quickly post about the episode on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, wherever things get shared. The audience for this show keeps growing and it's super cool. And, and I have you to thank for spreading the word. All right. Happy all the holidays. Hope you're able to rest and connect with loved ones safely during this bizarre holiday season. And, you know, after a couple months of putting this episode together, you would think I would have my Christmas gifts all figured out, but I, uh, I still have some work to do. So I will see you in a couple weeks for more Opinion Science. Bye-bye.